Now, I don't always understand God's ways. I wish that I did. I will probably get to heaven and say, what a silly wish, because he is immeasurably greater than our little minds can comprehend. But occasionally he lets us know what he's up to. And when he does, it's precious and it's good. But a lot of the time, he leaves us looking through a glass darkly. We don't see everything that he's doing. And the Christian life is full of paradox. A paradox is a seemingly uh, kind of incompatible uh, set of realities. Um, God does things on a higher plane than we do. And I'm going to give you a promise this morning. Right now in your life, there are things that just seem wrong. There are things that are out of line. There are things that are irritants and frustrations, maybe even to the level of impossibilities that are being woven into your life right now. And you're, you're tempted at times to look around and blame people because they're the closest at hand. If you're really Pentecostal, you blame the devil for all of that stuff. But sometimes we blame people and the devil for stuff that God's actually doing. That the Lord is actually weaving in some paradoxical elements into your life to show you in love and grace and for his glory that he's a lot different than you. That he thinks differently and he acts differently on a higher plane higher than the heavens are from the earth. And what he really is breeding in all of us is this willingness and commitment to trust him no matter what. Doesn't that sound unreasonable? Doesn't it sound unreasonable? Trust him no matter what. Well, isn't that faith? Or is faith only up to a certain point? And so we've got these elements in our lives that don't make sense, and if we're not careful, we will try to dodge the paradox, and in so doing, we dodge a blessing that would come through that paradox. And so when we look at this passage today, it's not even a passage, it's a verse, and we attach some other portions of Scripture to it, what I'm hoping is that as we see that the greatest event that mankind was ever witness to was 100% a paradox, the incarnation, prior to the crucifixion and the resurrection, the incarnation was the greatest paradox that had ever occurred on planet Earth. And the greatest thing God ever did was through paradox, through something that just doesn't make common sense. And if we can recognize that, maybe we can grow a little together to recognize that the things in our lives that don't make sense, maybe it's not the devil. Maybe it's not a person just trying to give you a hard time. Maybe it's God. So let's look at Mary and Israel, and let's look at Jesus most of all this morning. Mary was a teenage girl. Nine months earlier, she got an angelic visitor. An angel named Gabriel comes to where Mary was, gives her the startling announcement that she was about to conceive, and Mary gave a gentle protest. She had taken Biology 101 at the high school in Jerusalem in freshman year, and she said, I time out, Gabriel. I can't conceive. I'm a virgin. And Gabriel said this, oh no, what's about to happen to you is not going to be by natural means, it's going to be supernatural. The Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. 
and a conception will take place in your womb, and the very baby that is conceived in your womb is going to be Israel's Messiah. He will be the Son of God. And Mary yielded herself nine months earlier to the will of the Lord when she said, let it be accordingly unto your handmaid, unto your servant, O Lord. Let it be as you have said. And here we are nine months later. Now, I, I, I addressed what might have happened in those nine months we, we can assume that in those nine months, very few people believed the little teenager's story that she had been chaste and pure and was still a virgin. You probably wouldn't have believed it. I probably wouldn't have believed it. There was no precedent. And so Mary likely endured some scorn, and yet Joseph, her engaged husband, refused to kick her to the curb. He refused to walk away. He refused because he also had gotten a visit from Gabriel the angel, and God had affirmed the reality of what Mary was testifying to, that her baby was not because of some um, adulterous or some um, lustful engagement. But the baby was truly a miracle, and the baby would be Israel's Redeemer, Israel's Messiah. But I will say this, my first point, Mary's understanding was limited. There is no way, even with the Gabriel message and all of the things that came, there's no way she could have understood what was contained. But here we are at the hour, at the moment, and the Bible says she gave birth to her firstborn son. Mary, the virgin, gives birth. Mary, the unwed, as of yet, teenage uh, girl, gives birth. And she's in this place called Bethlehem where uh, some... Uh, in Micah chapter number 5, it was prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And God had arranged the pieces on the board and gotten Joseph and Mary to the city of Bethlehem. And now the time was here. God's son, let me give you this, was eternally prepared, but he was brought forth in time. We see in Galatians chapter number 4, verses 4 and 5, this is what the Scripture says. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Eternally ordained. This will boggle the mind. Don't try to understand it. We have to learn to believe some things we can't explain, and this is one of them. Before there was time, before there was space, before there was matter, there was an inter-Trinitarian agreement between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that God the Son would come and be born and live as a human being, the God-man. And that he would live and die and rise again in order to rescue sinners from their sin. And all of Israel had waited from Abraham all the way now to this day. Where is the Messiah? Where is the Messiah? Where is the deliverer? Where is the promised one? Where is the one that God would send? And of all the billions of women that had ever walked planet Earth at that time, Mary, a little peasant girl from Nazareth, she didn't have a pedigree. She didn't have a whole lot of fame. She didn't have any of that prior to this moment. And God said, I'm going to use this one. She's found favor with me, and now the time had come. And so there in Bethlehem, while everybody was showing up to the city of the husband's birth, and she was with Joseph at this point, they were wed, they had not consummated the marriage, but they were legally together now, and they're in his home city in Bethlehem, and it is now when God said, this is the night. All of time had been leading up to that point. All of the promises, all of the covenants, all of the waiting, all of the prophecies, all of it. Waiting to this moment where a nondescript young woman enters into a rural town in Bethlehem, a little place, 
And God says, tonight's the night. 700 years of oppression against Israel. You had the Assyrians, you had the Babylonians, you had the Greeks, you had the Romans. 700 years of being under tyrannical domination in the political empire. In Israel, God's chosen, the apple of his eye had been oppressed, and now God says it is time to break that yoke of oppression off of my people. I will send their deliverer. And here's the amazing thing, nobody noticed. The greatest moment on planet Earth up to that point and scarcely anyone save a few shepherds and later some magi from a, another land nobody noticed that god had sent the gift of his son well let's just go ahead and and go to the uh woman's pavilion there in the city of bethlehem and i'll give you this god's son was supernaturally conceived but naturally birthed. We're talking about paradox. I've already told you that there was nothing biological about the conception of uh, Jesus Christ, of Jesus in the womb of Mary. Though he was human, there was no man involved in the conception of this baby. It was a miraculous, supernatural work that the Holy Spirit plants a seed in the womb of Mary. It attaches itself to her egg, and nine months later, now there is this holy son of God. Now, listen, the conception was supernatural, but the birth wasn't. The birth was natural. You know, I think it's funny... Is it Hark the Herald's Angels Sing where it says uh, the little baby Jesus, no crying he makes? And we like to romanticize about the first family. We, we, we like to kind of hallmark it up a little bit. We kind of like to throw in a little dash of poetic beauty. And, and, and frankly, um, there's no telling what's been done uh, with, with this birth. I mean, we might picture it that Mary just says, ouch, and out comes the baby. And, you know, no afterbirth, nothing like that. And, and just a wonderfully pleasant, clean scene. It's not like that at all. Let me tell you, supernaturally conceived, but naturally birthed. There would have been the agony. There would have been the pain. There would have been the extended pushing and pushing and pushing. There would have been the gripping. There might have been the biting down on something with a clenched jaw. There would have been all of the effects that all of the women through all of time that have ever given birth, they can shout amen. They know more about it. I'm nervous even talking about it because I've never experienced it. But the point being, sisters, help me out. Jesus, help me out. The point being is that the birth was natural. The, the conception was unprecedented and never repeated, but the actual bringing forth of the child was natural. Again, you have the blending of the divine and the human. Jesus himself, the, 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 the perfect blend, not 50-50, but 100 and 100. It's, it's amazing. We, we have the hypostatic union for all of you theologians, and we don't understand all of it, but God became man, and there we have it, the blending. The Son of God in His nature was God and man. The conception of the Son of God was God and woman. We could even extend it as far as the written Word of God, being both divinely breathed but scribed by human hands. We see all throughout God's economy, we see the, the, the blending of the human and the divine. Then we see this. God's Son was inconceivably sublime, but plainly described. Just look at the way it's described. She gave birth to her firstborn son. In other words, just in the most simple language, Dr. Luke writes, Mary birthed the son. I'll submit to you again that 
there was great rejoicing in heaven. Heaven understood, but earth didn't. That's the way it works, by the way. Heaven always understands more than we do. That's why we are called over and over in the Word of God to renew our minds. We're called to submit our minds. We're called to center our minds. You and I live in a generation that is unequal in any previous generation about how the mind is assaulted 24-7. We have more streams of influence and information, more streams of, 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 of media coming at us than the goal for this fallen world system is to own your mind and dominate your thinking because as a human being thinks in his or her heart, that is the way that human being is going to live. And so we're called constantly to center our minds and to fill our minds and to submit our minds and yield our minds to the thing of God. Why? Because God understands. And this understanding God is also a communicative God. It means He speaks. He is more than willing to impart unto you revelation and understanding and illumination and knowledge. And yet so often we look, for, we look at things completely horizontally. And that's why we get tripped up on the paradoxes in life. That's why when things don't make sense, we have a hard time registering that God might actually be doing something very significant, especially in those seasons where we just are perplexed and we don't understand. We have no explanation. In Isaiah 9, 6, here's the verse I wanted to give you. Listen to what it said. Some 700 years earlier, this prophecy is given about the very baby Mary just gave birth to. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They sang last week, Mary, did you know? And I always want to say, nope. She didn't. It's a beautiful song. I love the song. She didn't know. She didn't know even later on in life. I don't think she had the possibility of really understanding much of it at all until the resurrection took place, but certainly not when she was nursing that baby boy. He's just a baby boy, friends. To the, to the naked eye, there was no halo. There, there was no angelic descent right there around Mary. It's just a baby boy, messy, staying there, and he's hungry, and he's crying. And, and here we have it that this very baby boy was sent from God, and some of this prophecy is yet to be fulfilled, but the Bible says the government will be upon his shoulder. Friends, that is a yet future prophecy. When Jesus came the first time, he didn't carry the government of planet Earth on his shoulder. Matter of fact, the government rejected him, refused him, and ultimately had a part, the Roman government, in crucifying and terminating his earthly life. He didn't carry the government of the world on his shoulder, but he will. He's going to come back and he's going to set up a literal throne. This little baby boy that was nursing and crying 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem grew up to be a man, as you well know. And that man is the Son of God, the Messiah, who lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. He never sinned. Every word, every thought, every action he ever did brought pleasure to the heart of the Father. And therefore, when he died on the cross, he was an unblemished, perfect, sacrificial lamb having none of his own sins to die for because he never committed any, he willingly took on all of my sin, all of your sin, all of the sins of all the nations for all of time was heaped upon the Son of God. He became sin so that we might be made into the righteousness of God. 
And now he has risen again after three days. The father says, rise again, my son. And Jesus comes forth and he ascended and went back to heaven. And he sits upon a throne where he rules the cosmos. And yet we do not yet see all things put under his feet, but we will. You see, my friends, he is the the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. And yet Luke just says, Mary birthed the son. You see, sometimes you have to unpack what God's doing on the surface. And you're going to find out that he's doing something great beneath. You know, it's hard to apply a, a Christmas message. I've been pastoring a long time, and you know, there's only a handful of texts. I used to try to get creative with Christmas sermons, and uh, that went over about as well as a dolphin in the desert. It just does not work. And so you just go back to your, your Matthew, your Luke, your Isaiah, and a couple of others, and how do you apply it? Well, friends, you, you just you learn from it. What was Mary thinking? What was God doing? What was going on in a scene that was unprecedented, and what can we learn for, from it? Well, let's move from Mary. Let's go into the nation of Israel, because according to their teaching, to their history, to the covenant, of the covenants of the Hebrews, they were all to be looking for the Messiah. They had by this time incorporated the understanding that the Messiah would be primary, primarily a geopolitical religious leader. They didn't understand, of course, the first advent, advent moving into the second advent. They, they just didn't see it. They were looking for one who would be raised up in the, in the likeness of David and who would stir Israel and break Roman oppression and set the people free and call Caesar to bow to the Messiah. And so they were looking in all the wrong places and they were looking for the wrong things. Israel's eyes were blind, point two. They were blind. They were looking for God in ways that God was not working. And before we point a long bony finger of accusation at Israel, I have to take a look in the mirror because I've been that guy that's looking for God in ways that God isn't even working. Well, let's see a little bit about it. The Bible says she gave birth to her firstborn son and then wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Uh, That's not a word we use often. It's still a practice that goes on in other parts of the world, especially in uh, less developed countries. Uh, A baby's born maybe in the village or in the bush, or a baby is born somewhere where they don't have adequate medical care. And and what people have learned to do is they take long strips of cloth, uh, cloth, and they will take the baby, and they will bind that baby up. I I used to love that. I, I learned how to do that with my kids. I never held a baby until I held Alicia, my firstborn. I was always afraid, you know, I was going to, somebody would hand me their baby and I'd be, oh, you know, I was always worried I was going to be that guy. I was even worried the first time I held Alicia, but you, you, you can't say no when it's your own kid. And so taking, and I remember somebody had made a little baby burrito out of her. You know what I'm talking about? They're in the hospital. So, oh, you got is this little face showing out and they're wrapped up and they're, they're just wrapped up and they're like a little baby burrito. And, and they're tight, and they're bundled up, and I remember learning how to do that, and it was always cool. 
because they were snug and they were safe. And there, there, there are reasons that they did that. One, it, it reminds the baby of being snug and safe in the womb, but it's also warmth. And so on the night that Jesus was born, they did what they, they could. There's, there's a lot of references and a lot of commentary about those were representative of the death clothes. Maybe, maybe not, but that's not my point this morning. The fact of the matter is it was fairly normal for children to be wrapped up and, and they made those little primitive baby burritos. And so there he was, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, why, why is this significant? Well, it's significant because in that day, it would have been completely insignificant. It was normal. The Lord entered into the normal processes, the normal culture, the normal community. Think about how you would have done it had you sent your son to be the Messiah, the king above every king, the Lord above every Lord's. Uh, You probably would not have had him, first of all, born and laid immediately in a trough. We we call it a manger. What it was likely was a stone-hewn-out feeding trough where there would have been either either water for the livestock to drink at one point or or meal for them to eat, but there was nowhere for Jesus to go. We'll we'll come back to that in a minute. When, When we think about him being wrapped in swaddling cloths, I, I just again, I think of the paradox that he's, he's God. As a baby, he was no le- he didn't grow into Godhood. He's God. He is born God. Creator entering into creation. Life giver taking on human life. The one who shouted out the cosmos is now crying out with an infant's voice. And this is our God. So we remember that Jesus was divine in his essence, but he was dependent in his appearance. He didn't look like God in the manger. He didn't. To the natural eye, he didn't. Isaiah 53, 2 says this about Jesus' whole existence. He grew up before him. Jesus grew up before the Father like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah is writing 700 years before Jesus was actually born into the earth, and this is what he says. He was just an average-looking baby. And as he grew, contrary to a lot of tradition and a lot of history, he did did nothing up until his first miracle in Cana of Galilee when he was 30 years old. And so the first 30 years of his life, doing nothing supernatural, doing nothing spectacular, nothing recorded, just being, not doing, just waiting, not working for the kingdom. Just abiding under the pleasure of the Father until the moment, as the Father said, the moment of your birth is here, the Father would also announce at the baptism, now you are the one in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit comes and Jesus immediately launches off into public ministry. See, a lot of it is waiting. Sometimes you'll lose your sense of the grandeur of God when you're in a season of waiting. Sometimes he doesn't look spectacular to you. Sometimes you're not stunned. I worry about people that are, have these breathtaking, stunning, amazing, supernatural, revolutionary encounters five times a day every day. Now, I'm not opposed to that if God wants to do that. That's not my experience. But my friends, I'm going to tell you, I don't know in reality that that's what we can expect. I hope that day might break out upon us. I do believe there will be a coming revival at the end of the age where we will see a massive outpouring of the supernatural works of God. But I want to tell you, for most of us, we're still waiting. 
We're still learning to abide. We're still listening. We're still scanning. We're looking. We're praying. We're listening. We're, we're waiting. And sometimes the Christian life doesn't come with a massive angelic choir. You can live days, weeks, months, maybe even years and not experience this incredible supernatural breakthrough that we, we often pine away for. I believe sometimes God wants to just see if we'll wait on him. For us to decide if he's worth the wait or if we're going to manufacture it on our, on our own. There's a temptation in a lot of our lives and a lot of churches to manufacture those things that we aren't patient enough to wait for. And so we don't pray and we don't fast and we don't seek and we don't read. We, we just turn up the volume on some things. We just put a little neon touch to it and, and we say, that's got to be spiritual, friends. I'm telling you, it'd be, wet, it'd be better off for all of us to wait in life for God to move than for us to try to figure out in our antsiness how to manufacture what looks like God's moving. Jesus was also... Eternally glorious, but temporarily humbled. Let me give you this verse from Hebrews 2. He was eternally glorious, but temporarily humbled while he was here. The writer of Hebrews said of him, We see him for a little while, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that the grace of God, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Think about this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of all of those angels, willingly humbled himself and took on a human experience that in, in that experience, he brought himself fully into humanity, which qualified on some level, the details of which were not fully disclosed here, but qualified him, and, and he's being described as being made a little lower than the angels. So in Jesus' earthly pilgrimage, some of that experience was able to be described in such a way that Jesus put himself lower than the very angelic realm that he had created. And I believe that it specifies there primarily through the experience of death, which I'll touch on in a moment here. Think with me on this, and then let's just think about our own lives here. There's got to be some application here. So the Son of God, in coming to do the greatest work that would ever be done, watch the trajectory. It wasn't up, 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 and away. It was down, 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 down. From a throne to a womb. From a womb to obscurity and 30 years of waiting. Some of y'all have been waiting like 30 minutes on something. And you're, you're what's going to happen? 30 years of waiting on the perfect timing of the Father. 30 years of his calling, his mission, being just, not yet, son. Not that he was ever impatient, but you can hear it this way. No, now is not the time, son. It's not the time, son. It's not the time, son. It's not the time, son. 30 years. And then, from the throne to the womb, from the womb to obscurity, from obscurity to public ministry, that might sound like an up, except it's Jesus' public ministry, and it wasn't stars and stripes. It was rejection. It was give, 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 and in the end, all of his giving, all of his loving, all of his healing, all of his blessing, all of his praying, all of his training, and all of his teaching resulted in the crowd crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. See, the trajectory, the paradox of God's ways even applied to God's own son. 
Down, down, throne, womb, obscurity, cross, grave. But when he could go no lower, when he had paid the fullest price, when he had gone as low in order to reach the lowest of the low and pay to the finish, to the fullest, that is when the Bible says, and because of that, God highly exalted him. You see, my friends, I'm I'm just going to leave enough room in here for us to experience some conviction. If God did not spare his own son the element of loss and pain and rejection and abandonment, please remember that it didn't just happen on the cross. Do you remember Gethsemane when Jesus was beginning to drink the cup? And he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto the death. That's God saying that. That the heaviness of life on earth was so intense that even the Son of God says, I am being pressed out of my soul. And it appeared as great drops of blood coming forth from his pores as he sweated it out in the garden. I have to, when I think of that, that, and I need to think of it probably more often than I do. Because I think to myself at times, man, I'm in a tough season. Wow, I... I'm alone, or I'm hurting, or I'm struggling. Some of you might say, well, I'm just unappreciated. Nobody understands. Nobody gets it. And listen, those are part of the the pathways in the human experience. I'm not telling us that we're making it up or we're imagining it. What I'm telling us is that as Jesus met the fullness of the Father's will and plan in that downward path, shouldn't we occasionally conclude that we might meet some of God's plan on that same trajectory? Yet we've been taught to fight that trajectory with all of our might. We've been taught that we have to resist in a hyper view of grace that we don't even want to speak truths like this because lest they befall us, and it's more hocus-pocus than it is the Word of God. And so... He was temporarily humbled, and and I would just say, so will you be. You will be too. So will I. Then we see this. Jesus was sent as a king, but robed as a peasant in those swaddling cloths. There were no royal purple robes. There were no soft blankets, no silken gown, no diamond-encrusted rattle for the Son of God. didn't work that way. He's just a baby wrapped in strips of cloth, not even in his own hometown, not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. And Paul writes about this in Philippians 2 in the Kenosis passage in verse number 6. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." I'm just amazed, I'm stunned, and may, may the, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we talk about the Spirit of Jesus Christ. There, there's no variation between the essence of the Holy Spirit and the essence of Jesus Christ. And so hope, hopefully you'll get what I'm saying. I want that aspect of the Spirit of Jesus in me. What, what are you talking about, Jeff? He humbled himself. He brought himself low. And, and he was the one who had every right in the cosmos to demand his rights to assert his rights, to enforce his rights, to declare his rights, 
to legalize and stipulate and codify his rights and tell everybody how it was going to be. And yet this is the same one that instead of doing all that I just said, he said, let me get a towel, let me get a basin of water, let me get a pitcher, and let me wash these disciples' feet. And he made himself a bond slave. He made himself a servant. So how's humility going in our lives these days? How's how's humility working for you tomorrow morning at the office? Or with the kids? Or with that cranky relative that you're going to see over the holidays that knows how to push your buttons? How's humility working? I, th- I think a lot of us, and I'll, I'm not, I don't want to speak shame or guilt, but maybe some reflection. I think a lot of us lost our humility during the election season. It was a fertile field of arrogance that we saw portrayed before us on social media, and a lot of it by Christians. There's no fruit in that. How about humility in the home? Humility in those most precious relationships where somebody's got to be the first to say, I'm sorry. Somebody's got to be the open one to say, I was wrong. Somebody's got to stop, step up and say, I'll change even if you don't. Jesus just said, I'm just going to be obedient to the Father. It wasn't depending on what Rome was doing. It wasn't depending on what the 11 disciples that remained with him, they all fled too. Judas, of course, is the betrayer, but Jesus didn't let Judas's sinful ways stop him from pleasing the Father. That's humility. Humility says, I know who I am. My identity has been assigned to me by my Father. I'm a daughter of God. I'm a son of God. I don't have to work for it. I've already got it. I'm going to please the Father. And as soon as we enter into that, friends, it's going to be tested. All I'm saying is this, is that in all of the things that Jesus did that pleased the Father, he also passed the humility test. He did not consider his equality with God something to be clutched and grasped. He let it all go. And so as we get down to the very end, and I am almost done, there's just a few words left in this verse. We'll just look at this. Jesus' commitment was unwavering. So Mary gives birth to her firstborn son, He was wrapped in swaddling cloths. And then the Bible just says he was laid in a manger because there was no place for them. There was no place for them in the inn. Bethlehem was crowded because, pardon me, it was the time of the census. It was a time where everybody had to go back to their hometown. They had to register. They had to do the census. And Joseph was from Bethlehem. And so, ladies, think about this. This wasn't, you know... uh, a four-hour drive to Panama City Beach in an air-conditioned car. Uh, this was riding on a donkey quite a ways, nine months pregnant, with a bunch of other people passing by on the road. And so they're all heading up there, and by the time Joseph gets there, of course he was running late. He's toting a pregnant woman. I mean, he's going to be running late. By the time he gets there, there is nobody, there's no vacancies. There's nowhere to stay. What a paradox, because let me tell you how we think. I I would probably give the advice now, Mary, you don't have to worry about anything. We're sincere, committed followers of Yahweh. Uh, He's been working in our lives. He's going to take care of us. I guarantee you, let's just get through the census tomorrow. We'll go back home, and I promise you, God's going to let you give birth right back there in your own home. Not so much, Joseph. No, the Lord didn't make it easy on them. I'm going to challenge you to do this. Get a concordance. 
And look up how many times the word easy is found in your Bible. Any translation. I'm, I'm not kidding. I did that a few years ago. Um, it'll be a short study, I can tell you that. It's just not there. Now, the, the American Bible, not the New American Bible, but the American Bible, the, the theology of America is God loves you, and because God loves you, he never wants you to experience anything remotely akin to discomfort. So God becomes a glorified bellhop who provides us with cushions everywhere we go. Matter of fact, he'll cushion a cross for you. Carry a cushioned cross is the theology of America. It's just not the theology of the Bible. So part of Mary's, uh, the plan for Mary's life was that she would give birth in a public place. And when the time came, her little baby, mamas, think about this. I mean, she's worn slap out, so they wrap him up. Joseph's like most of us guys. He's got baby burrito. He's got, he's, he's got the baby all wrapped up. He doesn't know what to do. And he's just like, hey, there's no water in that feeding trough. And he's like, yeah. And boom, look what I did, Mary. <laughs> Solved it. He's looking for somebody to high five, and they're all in the hotel. I mean... A little levity there, but, but the, the point being is this, is, is what stands out is this. There was no place for them. There was no place for them. There was, he owned the whole earth. He owned it all. Even as an infant, it's his. He rules the world. And yet there was no place for him. Think about this. On his first day, he's placed in a trough. On his final day, he's placed in a cross. From beginning to end, the bookends of the earthly life of Jesus. No place for him at the beginning. No place for him at the end. And he once told somebody, hey, before you commit to follow me, you need to know this. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The foxes have got a place to go. The birds have a place to go. But I don't own a piece of property. I don't have a home. This isn't a world that I'm at home in. Christians, I just want to give you this. I'm almost done. Thank you for being patient this morning. I know it's slow moving, but I want you to think with me this morning. Christians, Christians, I'm talking about Jesus Christ followers. Be really careful that you're not buying into the lie that this is your place. It's not. The Bible does teach that God has given us all things to richly to enjoy, but I think that we have a lot of things that God didn't give us so we can enjoy them. In other words, God will give us all things, and we can enjoy all those things that God gives us to richly. He richly gives us those things. In other words, he's a generous God, but I, I don't necessarily believe that a lot of what we are building our lives upon philosophically here is from God. I... I struggle with it, I'll just be honest with you. I, I don't feel guilty for being an American. I don't feel guilty for living in an <clears throat> incredibly prosperous society compared to every other generation in every other place. I mean, it really doesn't get much wealthier and much more opulent than the United States of America in the 20th and 21st century. And, and God let us be born here. And yet, I am, and, and forgive me if this is a little bit of a dig, but I am not real sure that with all of the wealth that we have that we're doing a fraction of what we could for the kingdom. And, I, and when I read that when Jesus came to earth, and it's all his, and there wasn't even a place for him to be. 
his whole life. I know he grew up in the home of Joseph, but my friends, that was a pass-through. He said it himself, yeah, I, I, I don't have anywhere to be. And he wasn't asking for pity. He was talking about surrender and submission and yieldedness and trusting the Father. Think of all the possessions that you see Jesus owning during his earthly life in the Gospels. Think of all of them. There aren't any. There aren't any. Clothes on his back. Sandals on his feet. That's it. And yet the temptation for me and you is to scramble and scurry and literally to spend the best of our lives at such a frenetic pace that we are wearied, irritable, sick, and unhappy trying to get something so we can buy something that we have to replace the next time the new something comes out. And yet Jesus said, oh, children, if you will invest in the kingdom and lay your treasures up in heaven, there's going to be great reward for you. To me, I believe that's probably one of the top three promises that we just don't believe Jesus on. And so Jesus had no place to go. And then we see this. From a radiant throne to a warm womb to a cold stone trough. Just remember this. Not all that the sacrifice that Jesus, God the Son, made took place on the cross. We often think that his sacrifice was just on Calvary. Just the nails, just the spikes entering into his flesh, and he's raised up naked as a spectacle for it to be mocked and rejected and reviled. We, we think that was the sacrifice. No, friends, his whole life was sacrifice. He denied himself constantly, denying himself, denying himself, denying himself from the very first elements of his entry into planet Earth, the cold stone trough. And his mission, friends, was sacrifice. It was one of sacrifice from the beginning to the end. And let's just learn from that. I think that means something, okay? Let's not just say amen to it. Let's say, okay, because I'm supposed to be like him, how is that fleshing out in my life? I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you what degree and where there needs to be sacrifice in your life. But I do know that Paul wrote to the church at Rome and he said, present your whole body a living sacrifice. That means everything that we are. And so we get down to the very end. And we give you the verse that probably best sums up the idea that there was just no room for him. And I'm going to ask you this question. Is there room for him in your life today? John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. What is that referring to? He came to Israel, and you know by history, you know by biblical history, that the Israelites rejected their Messiah. They've been waiting. They've been waiting thousands of years for their Messiah. But he didn't come like they were looking for him. They wanted him to emerge with the, pardon me, the, the, the military might of David and the oratory might of Moses in his later years. They, they wanted to see the compassion of Jeremiah to a little extent, but they would much rather see the glory that was attached to Isaiah's ministry. So Jesus came as a nursing infant who worked with his hands. He's a blue-collar worker for 30 years was introduced into the public scene by his second cousin, John. 
And he healed the people. And he loved the people. And he looked at the blind and, and said, what can I do for you? Oh, master, that I might receive my sight. And he caused the man to see. And the deaf left his presence hearing. And the broken and the guilty and the accused and the condemned and the vile and the sinful and the rejects from the religious culture all gravitated towards him because he wasn't like everybody expected. His very nature was a paradox. He let little children climb up in his lap while his henchmen, the disciples, were trying to shoo the kids away. And Jesus says, in essence, to them, he says, no, actually, let them climb up from my lap. And while they're up in my lap, I want you to learn from them. Because you have to be like them if you want to enter my kingdom. Paradox. And so, ultimately, Israel was given a choice by, of all things, a pagan governor. Whom shall I release to you? Barabbas, the murderer, the insurrectionist, or this one named Jesus? And the religious leaders, who of all people should have been looking with bated breath for the Messiah, he was standing right before them, and they said, away with him, give us Barabbas. And they moved the crowd to call out in a demonic, venomous scream to crucify the Son of God. He came unto his own, and his own would not receive him. They rejected Jesus, and they sealed their eternity by doing so. I'm talking about the individuals that said no to their Messiah. But, the happy part of the verse, to all who would receive him, to those people, he gave them the right to become the children of God to those who would simply believe on this one named Jesus. He said, if you have believed in my only begotten Son, if you will trust in Him, if you will listen to Him, and you will surrender to Him, you will be my son. You will be my daughter for all of eternity. He gives the right to be called His children for anybody that will receive his son, anyone. And so this morning, I'm not giving a big, long, formal invitation this morning, but I'm going to give a moment. Jill, I just want you to come to the piano. I just want you to play softly, sister. The Lord will tell you what to play. I want us to consider our soul at Christmas time. Because quite frankly, there's some good people in here that are not yet God's people. So Jeff, who you got in mind? Anybody. Anybody. Church-going people does not make redeemed people. Mom and dad may have done a good job, young person, but there will come a time where Jesus will pull you out from behind their coattails and say, I want to talk to you about you, not your mom and dad. Jesus once looked at his disciples. He said, people are talking about me. Who do they say that I am? And the crowd all had an opinion about who Jesus was, and all of it was incomplete. You're this, you're that, you're this. And that's kind of like today. Everybody's got an opinion on who Jesus was. But ultimately, the question that penetrates the heart is not who do people say I am. Jesus looked at them and said, who do you say I am? So who is he? Who is he to you? I'm going to tell you the confession that must come off of our lips 
would have been said in Paul's day like this. Christos Kyrios. Christ is Lord. You see, it was a dramatic confession in that day. Because the law of the land was Kaiser Kyrios. Caesar is Lord. But the early Christians would never say that again. They would say, we renounce all lesser loyalties. Christos Kyrios. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. Friends, we are so late in the game that I do not present to you a hybrid gospel today. I do not invite you to come to Jesus as Savior and tell you that you can live apart from him as if he's not Lord. I say this, the message of the gospel is surrender everything to Jesus Christ the Lord. There is only one way to him and it is a narrow gate through repentance and faith. To recognize, as I did on August 4th of 1994, that I was condemned, guilty, before a holy God, that my life had been my own, that I gave lip service to God, I had once prayed a prayer to God, but I ultimately did not want God ruling over my life, so I had run from God for many years. There came that moment, August 4th, 1994, where the weight was too heavy, where my religious views had been taken away, and I stood before a holy God with nothing to hide behind. And this was my prayer that day. I'm giving you my testimony. God, I have wrecked my life. That's what I told the Lord. I said, Lord, but that preacher told me if I would give it to you, that you would forgive me. And then I said this, I don't know if you're going to kill me or forgive me, but I'm not going to run from you anymore. Here's my life. I give it to you. I feel it. And in that moment, he took a 24-year-old young man who had been addicted to drugs, alcohol, and immorality day in and day out for 10 years. And he tenderly touched me. I crawled off that floor and I rolled into bed and I woke up about 10 hours later and as soon as I opened my eyes I knew everything was different. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, that may not be where you're at in life but I can tell you this, wherever you're at in life He's Lord and He comes to you today and in that same tenderness that He touched me with 20 something years ago He says to you today I know where you are. I know the paradoxical things you're going through. I know you don't have all the answers, but the one question that you need the most, you've just had answered. I'm your Lord. Will you say that I'm your Lord today? Would you bow your head and close your eyes right here where you are? In this place today, who will say yes to the Son of God? Right there where you sit, I'm not even asking you to come to me. It's not about you making it known to me. But right there where you sit, will you acknowledge that as a sinner you need a Savior? That's the humility. Will you lower yourself for a moment? And just say, Jesus, I can't play. I know I'm, I'm, I've hidden some things, but Lord, I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. And then will you believe that he said he came to seek and to save the lost? Will you believe that from him? That he actually is seeking you out to bring you to this place? of acknowledgement and belief and surrender. 
You see, your sin has a price attached to it. And that price is separation from God spiritually. And if you die without forgiveness, you'll be separated from Him eternally. But Jesus came and He said, the payment for your sin is death, so I will pay that payment. Somebody has to pay it. So He died. And He cried out on the cross, it's finished, it's done to tell us die, it's paid in full. And then we are taught in Scripture that any person that will call upon him to those who received him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. You have to receive him. How do you do that? By faith. You say yes in your own words. You don't need my fancy prayer. 20-something years ago, all I said was, I've wrecked my life, here it is. You say it your way, he speaks your language. But there has to be surrender. So Father, in this room right now, will you bless with saving faith those who need to be saved? Let them know in their own hearts that what you, do, you have done through the work of your Son for countless people, you've done for them this morning if they have surrendered and repented. And I pray, Father, that the newness of life will begin to course through them. I pray that they will see things differently. That the pleasures of sin that were for a season will no longer be there anymore. That they will attach themselves to you, to your church, to your word. And they will experience the life that you've had for them. And Father, for those that are already your children, going through convoluted times with few answers and more and more questions. Will you whisper to them right now, Holy Spirit, that you're actually working all these things for their good. That they're following in the footsteps of their Savior, whose whole life was a paradox. He never doubted. We can't say that, Lord. But we can say that today we can bring those doubts to you. We trust, we wait, and we abide. In Jesus' name, amen.